Well, it's March 29th, it's 2015. Our message this morning is called Bread Basket Full of Worms. And uh, I can tell you that the Stevens got a chance to endure a lot of things to be here with you today. And it was worth it. Every bit of it. There is no church in the world like the one you are called to be in. I love this place. I love it with all of my heart. I love you. As far as I'm concerned, we could burn down the building tomorrow. I don't want to because now it's prettier. We could meet in an open field, and the field could be full of pigs and septic lines, and I wouldn't care as long as the saints of the living God were gathered there. Amen? Um, it would probably be best, you're going to keep a finger in a, in, in a chapter for a little bit, to turn to Luke 9. <clears throat> and just hold your finger there, and when, uh, when we get there, I'll tell you about it. You all doing okay this morning? I should probably go ahead and tell you that King's Harvest Fellowship in Baton Rouge, Louisiana sends their greetings. They are moving forward, presently working in orphanages and all kind of neat things. They're on a project to remodel an entire orphan's dorms and redo their basketball courts. And I love their heart. Their pastor, Pastor Johnson, says, if we went to a school if we went to any college level, any high school level, we don't put the cheapest, easiest to obtain goals up for our kids. These are the sons of the Most High God. I want them to have glass backboards and breakaway rims. I'm going to tell you the truth. I don't think God cares at all about glass backboards and breakaway rims, but He does care about the heart that wants to go the furthest. He does care about the heart that says, I want to do things for those that cannot repay. He does care about how we treat the lowest in our society because they're the highest in His. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Submission Ministries sends their greeting. Zach and Zeke Lamb have got an amazing work going on there. I love those men. I love their wives. Just when you think that you couldn't be any more impressed, you meet the rest of their family. It's pretty amazing. Those brothers are preaching the right word of God. They're preaching it accurately, preaching it with power, and lives are being changed. Jake and Kelly have pulled alongside them. There are so many people there that are pure-hearted on fire for the Lord, and it, it is truly spectacular. When we moved on from Submission Ministries, we stopped in Gadsden, Alabama. Bob and Lynette Cook have it in their heart to begin some kind of work there. Exactly what that will entail and what shape it will take. That remains yet to be seen. The timeline remains yet to be seen. But what is definite is that is where their heart is. We got a chance to tour the town, to visit homes and churches and potential co-workers. And I can tell you that the Lord's at work there. He's doing something there. Life Changing Ministries is a ministry that will get behind you and your vision. We are not uh, building an ivory tower that we expect you to worship at the feet of. This is not about us. It never has been. It's about you and what you're called to do. We exist here to prepare you for works of service. Uh, no matter whether that's fivefold ministry or it's running a godly business and ministering every day in that business, our job 
as fivefold ministries to prepare people for their works of service. Uh, I would like to say that our trip was wrought with problems, but that's where the glory of God is, isn't it? In Wade's message, Be Strong and Courageous, he mentioned a 3D life. The three Ds, as I understood them, were discouraged, debted, and discontented. This is the pool of people that King David picked out of. Did y'all hear the message? It was only a week ago. Do you remember the message? I would like to tell you that I am happy to no longer be in a 3D life. I was discouraged, I was debted, and I was discontented. But now I am encouraged. My debts have been paid, and I am content in any and every situation. I am not what I once was because of the glory of God. Can you say hallelujah for that? In Cassidy's message, Coming Alive, she mentioned the concept of functioning in your own purpose and that the glory of God is in the joy of your design. Church, we know our design. We know that glory awaits us as we walk it out. The vision and purpose of this church have not changed. The vision and purpose of this church will never change. We are simply picking up a domestic mission schedule. We are following disciples from birth right on through reproduction and multiplication. So when we see someone like Zeke Lamb go back to a state and set up a church. We want to get behind that. That's not just the ministry of the Stevens or the One Association. That has always been a part of life-changing ministries. That's a part of you. How many of you have visited one of the other churches in the association already? Look at the hands around the room, and we're not four months into the association. That is because this body is unique. Our heart's design is to help our brothers. One of the axioms in this church is, I need my brothers and my brothers need me. That extends beyond these walls. Amen? Amen. I want it to be known that it is our desire to go the distance with our brothers. If you were called to Istanbul, then members of this congregation hope that we get the privilege of going to Istanbul with you. And if we are denied that privilege, then we will share with you financially. And if we have no seed to sow in that regard, then we will fall on our knees and pray with you. Whatever it takes, we go the distance with our brothers. That's from birth to church plant. That's from birth to multiplication and reproduction. That is a part of the original vision of the church, and it is still a part of the vision of the church. I want to read it to you as we wrote it in 2002. Life-changing ministries and fellowship was formed under the direction of the mighty King Jesus with many convincing and miraculous affirmations regarding our direction and our vision. Our driving purpose is to see the kingdom of God advance on earth as we await the renewal of all things. As we join with the worldwide body of Christ in this effort, our emphasis is on seeing the life-transforming power of God changing one life at a time. These precious lives are then to be polished as if they were rare metals or valuable gems by the doctrine of the apostles and the Spirit of God so that they will be thoroughly equipped to accomplish the work that they were uniquely called to perform. When we see that God has established a connection, we don't stop simply because they move on. In the name of Jesus, how many of you could have a child and when they move out of the house, stop caring about them? 
How many of you could see that child have grandchildren and suddenly no longer care about it? Say, well, I don't get anything from it. I don't do anything but expect birthday cards. What kind of heart would say that? You long to see a godly legacy that began well before you and extend way after you spread out on the globe for the glory of God. Somebody say glory in the house of God. LCMF is dedicated to a spirit-balanced approach to teaching about Hebraic roots of the Scripture. The role of Israel, the early community of New Testament believers, Bible prophecy, the plan of God, and the practical elements of our faith. Our goal is to comprehensively equip believers to live out the teachings of Yeshua, whether they are birthing churches or serving God in the secular arena. The sign that hangs above the exit to our church reads, Perform out there what you have practiced in here. Church, we are just now doing what we have always planned to do. We are performing out there the same things that we have practiced in here. I have been privileged to be a pastor in this congregation since its beginning. And I am thankful for it. Now it is my very great privilege to still pastor men that I once pastored as they pastor others. This is a calling of God on my life. I didn't choose it. And yet, I don't have it in me to say no because the King of Kings has spoken and I will obey. It's been said that we are in transition. And I may even have wrongly used such a word. Transition would imply in some minds transformation, that we are changing from one thing to another thing. No, friends, we are simply growing in what we've already been given. There will be no fundamental shift in who we are. Who we are is well established and we will grow in who we are in Christ. We will always function as a ministry team. There will be a round table that Jesus is the head of. There will never be in this body a carnal kingdom mentality based on a hierarchy. Well, who's the founder? Who's the executive? Who's the senior? None of those are biblical terms and they will never exist here. We will simply, with each decision, lay our staffs before the Lord and say, which one is budding today, mighty God? Because we trust that the Holy Spirit is the great general. We trust that King Jesus still has the right to direct his body and that he can use more than one man, i.e. Peter and John, i.e. James and Peter, i.e. Paul and Silas, Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas and John Mark. We believe that God works in covenant. Covenants have order, they have structure, and they are all based on submitting to one another out of love as we submit to King Jesus. We will always be outward focused. We will always utilize every person's gifting to the glory of God in the best way that we know how. So if there's gifting in you that we've not yet seen, be patient with us. You never know what will happen. The King of Kings has the right here to move in any way that he would like. And if Pastor Sutherland is gifted in administration, then we are going to stand back and let him administrate. If his family's calling is to edify the body of Christ, we're going to stand back and let them edify in every possible way. If the P-Row's calling is to propel people into the presence of God, then we will not get in their way as they do it, but we will get down on our knees and let them stand on our backs so that you can see them. That is how the body of Christ works. It's the sacrifice of all. Can you say amen? amen? Did you turn to Luke 9? We form strong connections with people. 
And I want you to know that many churches operate in such a way that after you've put your last dollar in the plate, they have given their last ounce of concern about your life. But that is not true here. We will soon go to the arising church. We'll go to the arising church because we love them, because we're connected with them, because we care about their vision and their calling as much as we care about our own. We will soon uh, return to new life in Victoria, where Matthew's just come from Saturday. God is blessing these churches. They're growing. They're growing in wisdom and stature with favor with God and favor with men. And they're blessed by the things that we formed here. They didn't originate with us. They originated in the family and heart of God. But they have been carried out in our lives in a way that we now understand them. Can you say amen to that? In Luke 9, there is a unique passage. Starting in verse 51 on triumphal entry Sunday. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely, somebody say resolutely, I'll say it again. You weren't resolute when you said it. Resolutely. Resolutely. Oh, come on. Get a little growl in you, Timo. Resolutely. You can't say resolutely. Resolutely. The idea here in Greek and in Hebrew is that you set your face in an area that no matter what hits you, no matter what comes at you, you are like granite. You're immovable. You're hard fast. You cannot be dissuaded. He resolutely set out for Jerusalem. When we talk about the lion and the lamb and what a beautiful, beautiful prophecy that was. It was right on the mark. You need to understand that you set out like a lion. Resolute. Nothing will dissuade you. The great Lord of the forest has come. He's out of his cage and all better know that he's serious. But you walk like a lamb, tender, merciful, not devouring those around you. You're hoping to encourage them by your steadfastness, by your resoluteness, because you obtained it from the King of glory. Jesus set out resolutely for Jerusalem. Why? What was waiting for him there? Why do you have to be resolute? Does it sound like maybe something would try to dissuade him? Does it sound like if he wasn't set like granite in that direction, that perhaps a lesser man would not have arrived there. What does it mean to be resolute? I was speaking with a brother on the phone the other day, and it's obviously tongue-in-cheek. I'm prone to joke, particularly when not behind the pulpit. And while I was wearing my Uncle Eddie hat (coughs) and driving a car pulling an RV Clark... (laughs) I said, brother, if we have to carry this thing on our back, Jennifer and I will do it. We will not miss our appointment Sunday morning. You cannot imagine the number of things that tried to keep us from getting here. And having said that, if you have not determined the direction God has called you to go, and you are not resolute about it, you will never get there. This is not a chance for me to beat up on those of you who have floundered. That's not the point. This is a chance to rally your strength and examine something. Some of you have been saying for 20 years you're going to do thus and so, and for 20 years it's remained undone. How resolute are you? You can be no more resolute than you are certain that God has spoken to you. But once He has spoken to you, 
See, Jesus Christ knew what awaited him in Jerusalem. The reason that he was resolute about his direction is he knew that he was going there to die. Maybe this is the problem. We're resolute about all of the wrong things. Perhaps we're resolute about obtaining a blessing. Perhaps we're resolute about getting what we want. But how many of us are resolute about giving away our lives? See, the call of Jesus Christ is to go to Jerusalem and to die there. Now, when they met him, it was not with a funeral march. Turn with me to Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, look at verse 9. Say there when you were there. The crowds went ahead of him. And those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Isn't this how every calling starts? Oh, everyone is excited. Everyone's excited because we're called. We're called. We're called. We're excited because you found out that you can prophesy. You found out you can sing. You found out you can preach. You found out that when you pray for people, they get healed. And we're excited because God has called us. We just want to run. We want to go. We're excited. But what are you running towards? There's a lot of fanfare in the beginning. It's beautiful. It's majestic. But the same people that are shouting, save us, are going to shout, crucify him. Are you so resolute that if the world turns on you, that if your friends turn on you, that if your mentors turned on you, are you so resolute in your direction because you know it's from God, you cannot be dissuaded on this triumphal entry Sunday? It's important to know Jesus was resolute even though he knew what awaited him in Jerusalem. And he faced their praises with the knowledge that the very same people were going to kill him. But that is the reason he came into the world. What is your purpose? Oh, to be blessed. That's my purpose, Pastor. A life of comfort, a life of affluence, ease, coasting. Jeroboam, son of Nebat, thought of such things. He had a calling from God. If you want to make a note about his life, you can read about him in 1 Kings 12. He had a calling from God. He would get 10 of the 12 tribes. How many people would not be happy with 10 twelfths of something? I mean, that's a bunch, isn't it? He'll get 10 of the 12 tribes. Of course, he thought God's method of worship, his location was a little inconvenient. So he set out to make the location a little more convenient. Perhaps we can put a goat god, a golden calf at Dan and at Bethel. That way the people don't have to go all the way to Jerusalem. He corrupted the ideals of Yahweh. You can worship Yahweh while staring at this golden calf. I mean, it's what you worship when you're in Egypt. You're used to it. I mean, after all, we want to be contemporary and relevant. He picked carnal priests. You don't really have to be a Levite. You don't have to be forged in the furnace of God. The requirements for you are not really that you strapped your sword on your side and went to war against your brother for the glory of God. In fact, we could take them from any manner of people as long as they're good looking, you know. They look like real estate agents. Surely they'll be good pastors. If they smile pretty, surely they'll be good pastors. He started counterfeit festivals that went on to the time of Christ. 
It's not necessary to go on the seventh month. It's not necessary to go in this month or that month. We'll go in the month that works best for us. Ever so slightly, he reduced the God of the universe to a cosmic genie. Somebody just to grant your wishes if you rubbed his belly. And this is what's going on all around us. Sometimes it's so subtle that you don't notice. Sometimes it just looks with, like people with good intentions, you know. Of course, they pick their churches based on the most convenient location. You drive across town to get your bald head shaved. But when it comes time to go to church, you go wherever it's closest. They worship God with corrupted ideals. They hope to get something rather than to give something. This is fundamentally wrong. They worship with carnal priests. As long as the man speaks well, as long as he and his wife present well, as long as when a guest comes, they feel like it's respectable. Oh, well, that'll work for us. And they have counterfeit festivals. God said about such things, your religious ceremonies make me sick. It's like breaking a dog's neck, he said through one of the prophets. And yet, it's palatable to all around us, even as Christ's entry into Jerusalem was met with praises everywhere. Of course, when they found out who he really was, they killed him. What did you set out for? I want to give you an axiom that will be in this church today. It'll be in this church tomorrow. It'll be in this church if Christ returns for 200 more years. It does not depend upon the Stevens. It does not depend upon the Piros. It does not depend upon the Sutherlands or whatever team of pastors succeeds all of us because that's how that will work always. You can find it in 2 Samuel 24. Say there when you were there. Are you still awake? I don't want to compare you with other churches. But I do have to tell you that Submission Ministries is pretty alive. They're pretty exciting. Of course, their pastors are younger, stronger, better looking, more anointed. But we serve the same king, don't we? Zeke will throw a punch at me if he hears me say that. You know, he's not a giant guy, but don't mistake him. He is full of strength. Zeke met a Korean doctor there who's running a school. And within five minutes, that doctor is talking to us about any church bigger than 200 people might consider splitting. It might consider splitting as a multiplication because the body of Christ is supposed to be all over the earth. You know? And uh, I said, hey, where'd you get that idea? He said, from the Bible. <laughs> I said, you and I have been reading the same book. That's amazing. You know? Zeke is teaching Japanese and Chinese and a couple Vietnamese students the Bible. And a couple South Koreans that for some reason kept saying they were North Koreans. That was their idea of a joke. He's teaching them the book of John. He's teaching them about the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He asked them what redemption was. They all in unison said to buy back. Jesus Christ has bought me back from the devil. Oh, is that exciting? 
In 2 Samuel 24, starting in verse 21, Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord, that the plague on my people may be stopped. We did not build this church so that people could come and marvel at its beauty. When we got it, it was not very pretty. The Sutherlands and the Piros are putting a unique touch on it as they've gotten feedback from the congregation and inspiration from their friends. We see it becoming more aesthetically pleasing. And I'm excited for it. Wood and leather are the way to my heart. If you put some antlers in here and a gun on the wall, we'll be even happier. But David did not want to build a temple so that people could come and say, look at pretty stone, look at pretty metal, look at pretty stained glass steeples or pews. He wanted the plague on his people to come to an end. And it was beyond contestation that the people were dying all around him. Is it any different today? Why do you build the temple that you are building? What is the work product of your life and why are you doing it? Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Aruna gives all this to the king. Aruna also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. Does anybody here think Aruna is a bad guy? It is possible to be generous to a fault and to get in the way of God because you are allowing the kingdom to be based on your generosity rather than equal sacrifice among all. In this way, it is very difficult if there is one man in your midst with much and others with very little. Because ever so slightly, those who have little look to him who has much. And we're all supposed to be looking at the Lord. I have observed through the years that parents that do too much for their children raise children rather than adults. Let that sink in for a second. You know, we got some experience backing a fifth wheel here lately. Can I tell you that's 40 feet of fun? 20,000 pounds of controlled precision. (laughs) If every time your son gets behind the wheel to move it, you say, hey, move, I've got more experience with that. I'll do it. I don't, I don't want anything to happen. He never learns how. And you think you're helping him, but you're actually crippling him. Do not cripple other people with your generosity and do not fail to be generous. Aruna has got a crippling generosity. He's left nothing for David to do. But the king replied to Aruna, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God a burnt offering that cost me nothing. I want you to understand that we will always go the extra mile. We will always put blood in the sacrifice. And if you meet us and so it becomes easier, we will simply go further to return to our normal, which is hard. Say, well, why? Why do we have to do that? Look. 
There are other churches that are based on convenience. They're based on different ideals. In fact, look at how well things go for them and how many people are there. Look at it. We are resolute in our direction because our direction ends in a crucifixion for each one of us. We die with Christ that we might be raised with Christ. Too many people love the praise in Jerusalem and they do not want the crucifixion that necessarily follows it. We live in a time when convenience has taken over the church world. While our churches are as big as Walmarts, they function like stop and go or 7-Eleven. It's a quick in and out and a high premium for the little bit that you get. This church was founded on the idea that you are precious to the Lord. And that whatever it takes to polish you. Because you have something to offer Him that only you can offer Him your very life. We are not working for the praises that come from Jerusalem. We are working to embrace the bloody cross of Jesus. So how can you talk like that? One pastor said, Eric, my sons are convinced you have a death wish. I said, don't you? Shockingly, they left our church. How can you not have a death wish? How many of you want to go to heaven? But none of you want to go right now. How bad do you really want to get there? Say, I want to go to Washington, D.C. Great, hop in the car, let's go. Well, we'll go later. You don't really want to go. I've been looking for the chance to give my life away since the moment he gave his life for me. Say, Eric, that's morbid. No, it's not. It's the abundant life. The abundant life is when you have none of your own to live. You only have his to live. And every moment is a gift. Every moment is precious. Every moment is wonderful. Say it with me. I will not offer the Lord something that costs me nothing. I don't want cheap grace. I don't want sloppy agape. In the name of Jesus, I want to go the furthest. I want to hurt the most. I want Him to be proud of me. Oh, church. The gospel call is if any man would follow me, he must first deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. If any man would come after me, he must deny himself. This is missing from the gospel today and it will not be missing here. You say, why is it always so hard? Because crucifixion is. Oh, that you could just be nailed to a cross one time. No, every time you submit to your brother in love when you're pretty sure you're right and they're wrong, it's crucifying. Every time you feel overlooked, but you do it with a smile. And to go the extra mile, you show up at their party and you throw up your hands in excitement for them. It's a crucifying thing. And there's honor for Jesus Christ in it. We need to get out of the habit of crossing our arms when things don't go our way. Running and hiding and licking and nursing our wounds and start celebrating the crucifixion. Oh, the crucifixion is not just what happened to Jesus. It's the life that we're living right now. And it is abundant. Perhaps when you came into the kingdom, you were given a different idea. Let me say this. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, it wasn't to bring the sacrifice that cost him nothing. He came to give us all. He came to pour out every last drop. What makes you think you can give him your life? And pour out less than your all. 
Are you like me that when you go to use a half-inch impact wrench that's not five days old, and while you're working on something that has been seized from heat and rust and missions mud, the impact explodes in your hand, you could get a little frustrated. But praise God, you found one more moment that you can give the Lord something. Are you like me that when you're working on a pulpit and your finger hits the table saw and half of it flies off and hits the fence, that that's not the most exciting thing you had prayed for that day? But when you can say, Baruch Atah Adonai, bless you, O Lord, I found one more moment that I can show your Lordship. It changes everything. You have a life that you get to give to Him. And it shows up when you get to love your neighbor. It shows up when you get to love Him more than yourself. It shows up in every moment of sacrifice that you meet with a smile. And it's our honor to do it. He showed up in Jerusalem resolute because he knew what would be required of him there. And despite all of the praises, it didn't lull him to sleep. His message didn't get soft when the praises got loud. Did you hear it? His message didn't grow weak when the people grew strong. He rose to meet the challenge. He actually stood and said things like, If any of you can prove me guilty of sin, do it. Oh my. I challenge an American pastor today to do such a thing. Behind their gated communities and secret service earpieces and million, or what's the latest, $65 million planes. If these men are men of God, then I am a goat with horns, hooves, and a beard. $65 million planes are what we need. Why? So that we can fly all of Yemen to the United States to get saved? No, no, no. $65 million for one family to go spread the gospel. I'd rather my last name be Penny than Dollar. If there was a mite, I'd take that. If there was something smaller than a mite, I'd take that. Oh, church, why do we seek to become so big? Why do we seek to become so easy? Could it be that we have too much convenience, too much coast, too much affluence in us? Could it be... That we only want to do it if the location is convenient, if the ideal is something that's pleasing to us, if there's something in it for me. Do you need to be wowed from the moment that you hit the parking lot to the moment that you leave the parking lot? What are we, Disney World now? And yet this is what goes on on Sunday evenings and Monday mornings to discuss in churches across the United States. Do you want that? Then what we're going to do, friends is we're going to see precious lives changed. We're going to polish them with a rugged wooden cross. We're going to teach them to give their lives away. And then when men and women are drawn to the pureness and the sincerity, the resoluteness of that cause, we're going to support them in ministry even when our church is but a shadow in the distance from theirs. We're going to do that because it's what Jesus did. 
He had the most powerful healing ministry the world has ever seen. He had the most powerful ministry period the world has ever known. And he left it in the hands of 12 people who were still doubting when he left. It's just like Jesus to take the new guy and make him the head of it all, isn't it? Turn with me to actually, you turn to Exodus 16. When you get to Exodus 16... Susan, we want to put a different scripture on the screen. We don't want to tax the people by having them to have to turn to Old and New Testament at the same time. John 6, 48. Could you put that on the screen while we are in Exodus 16? I watched the hearts of young men and women in a couple states. Some of them young, some of them young in the faith. As we taught the very basic concepts that God has explained to us, that He's caused us to live out, that He's caused us to get some blood and sweat in. I was teaching Rock Kazakamats at the same time you were teaching Rock Kazakamats. You know why? Because it's what the Spirit of God is saying. Stand up and be men. I got to teach on the baptism in the Holy Ghost. got to teach on building altars for God. I got to teach on a bunch of beautiful things. And you know what? When somebody's been born of heaven, they're like a sponge. It didn't matter how late the meetings went, they wanted more. I was pretty sure like all men who go somewhere to speak that they already knew all this and that it would end in failure. And I went anyway. And the people were blessed everywhere we went and are still writing to us thank yous for the spiritual treasures they feel like they received. Let us be careful not to become complacent simply because the food pantry is always open for us here. We have a responsibility. Paul, actually not Paul, whoever wrote Hebrews said you ought to be teachers by now and you still are sucking on bottles. I'm not saying that to you. I'm not saying the Word says that to you. I'm simply saying that the Word says it and we need to consider it. We have a responsibility having been given so much to go the furthest, to give. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. That's an interesting thing. For your forefathers ate manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. What is that reference to, saints? What is Jesus talking about? Is he sunbeam bread? Well, what's the reference to? How about that, Nolan? Thank you. To Exodus 16. It is a reference to manna, is it not? If you don't believe me, he says manna three times in that one chapter. That'll help you with your hermeneutic key. Are you in Exodus 16 now? I would like to talk to you for a minute about manna and its relationship as a word to this church. I'd like to talk to you in the light of he who goes the furthest towards Jerusalem, towards crucifixion, has the most to offer the Lord. I want to talk to you about whether or not you want it light and easy or whether you're looking to fill up in your body what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Boy, when's the last time you heard that preached? Fill up in your body what is lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. Or how about this little gem? It's been granted 
unto you not only to believe in his name, but also to suffer for him. Or how about this little gem? They left rejoicing, for they had been counted worthy of suffering for the name. That's all good and fine as long as it's on the mission field. You live on the mission field. Everywhere we go is a mission field. Exodus 16, starting in verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them to see whether they will follow my instructions. Oh, my. This is an educated church, a biblically literate church. You know the story of the manna. Manna settled as dew came down on the camp. But you need not think that the manna was at their doorstep. See, sometimes when you think about this, it's kind of like, oh, they opened their tent flap that morning and there's manna. That's not what this says. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day. Say say with me, go out each day. That's going to require some effort. What we're talking about going out each day, I want to show you something. Uh, Susan, could you put the picture on the screen? Some years ago, I took the book of Numbers. I looked at the tribal locations in the book of Numbers. And I noticed that each tribe, it was said where they faced, what direction they faced. It gives the numbers of each tribe there. And when you do this and you begin to look at it and you see that Judah's name means may he be praised and that his tribal standard was a lion and he faced the east which is the direction of return when you see that Reuben's name means behold the sun and he faced the south and his tribal standard was a man and so on and so forth as you begin to arrange this I realized wow this is what Ezekiel saw and then I went wait this is what John saw they saw the throne of God with four-faced creatures just beneath the throne and the faces that they saw were a lion, a man's face, an ox, and an eagle. And I went, what an amazing thing. You mean God really is enthroned upon His people. You mean that God said, I want a tabernacle with a holy of holies and an ark of the covenant, and I want my people arranged in tribes of 12, but specifically four groups of the tribes facing each direction. And it would mirror on earth exactly what the prophets would see in the heavens many years before those prophets were even born. And I went, oh man, that's amazing. But that's not what we're teaching on today. You'd have to come to a foundations meeting for something like that. Here, what I want you to get is that manna did not fall in the tabernacle. That manna did not fall where the Miriamites, the Kohathites, the Gershonites, or Moses and Aaron were. That manna was something they had to go out to get. And if Judah is on the east and Reuben's on the south and Ephraim's in the west and Dan's in the north and they all had to go out, then the manna fell outside the camp. The phrase, when the dew settled on the camp, the manna also appeared, means that it came down like dew, but not that it fell in their laps. Are you hearing me? So let's move away in our thoughts from a very familiar story where we're not opening a door and then there's manna there. You actually had to go out and gather it, just like the scripture said. Oh my, what would this mean then? Is there anybody in Israel closer 
to God than Moses? Probably not. He's a friend. In Numbers 11, it said, why did you speak against Moses? I speak to him face to face, not like other men. Why weren't you scared to speak to Moses? To slander Moses. This would mean that if Moses wants manna that day, and he's there ministering at the tabernacle, Moses has to go the furthest distance to get that manna, doesn't it? In fact, the closer you are to God, the further you would have to go to pick up the bread of heaven because it fell outside the camp. Oh, somebody say outside's where the blessings are. Oh, I know we spent all of our time trying to teach you all the blessings are found in here. Come in here, come in here, come in here. No, this is where you learn to go get the blessings. You come to the huddle to learn what it is to go to the field. If you don't come to the huddle, you don't know what to do except die out there on the field. But when you come to the huddle, we're supposed to teach you to go out and get the manna. Now, let's grab one more truth from that little thought. The closest distance to get manna were for those who were furthest from God. If you were on the very outskirts of the camp, the manna did feel, feel very close to your home. It's almost like God is trying to encourage the weak but expects more out of the strong, isn't it? It's almost like if you are mature, he expects you to go the extra mile. And if you're still an infant, then he expects you to aim for the extra mile but will hand it to you at the first foot. See, every day, those that had to go the furthest were those that had spent the most time with God. Why do I want to go the furthest? Because I know that if I go the furthest, it will take being with God the most to do it. See, there's a relationship. When you don't want to do very much for Him except live a life of ease and comfort, you never get very close to Him. To some, and I appreciated Cassidy's message explaining some of the differences here. To some, this sounds arrogant. This brother's not happy with who he is. He, he's ambitious for so much more. I serve a great big God, and I believe the closer I get to him, the further I can go for him. Do you believe differently? I'm not looking for the least. I'm not looking for the minimum. You should not be looking for the least or the minimum. If you find one more painful thing you get to do for Jesus, praise God, you'll have to get that much closer to him. And in sharing that fellowship of suffering, you share in the glory that's to be revealed. Oh, man, that's worth it. Have you ever seen guys sit around? I mean, I know you have. I'm not going to pick men out of the congregation. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pick on Spencer or Cody. You know, I wouldn't say that they were sitting around one day with Brent and Matthew. And they got to sharing war stories. And Cody said, you know, oh, yeah, I, I had stitches here one time. And Brent said, that's nothing. Look. This is where Teresa broke my heart. You know? <laughs> I won't tell you that men sit around and swap stories about scars and they tend to escalate. It starts with a splinter and it ends up with, well, I broke my neck, right? You don't do that when you're in a disability ward. You don't. Those people are not celebrating their disabilities because they're victims of them. Are you a victim of your circumstances or are your circumstances causing you to say, no, in Christ Jesus, I'm more than a conqueror in all these things? Oh, church, I'm trying to reach your heart today. 
See, the thing is, is you have a choice. And every time you have to go a little further, you go, oh, my God, did you know I'm sorry to walk? Or you can go, the Lord must feel like I'm getting closer to him because he's starting to require more of me. And I'm so happy to give him more. There's so much more to give him. I, I didn't bring anything to the table, and he just let me do this for him. Of course it was hard. I hope the next one's harder, and the one after that's harder, and the one after that kills me. If that's not your attitude, I, I don't know what you got saved into. I do. You got a little bit of that Samaritan faith that's going around. It's pretty popular. You can fly in a $65 million jet just for preaching it. You know what? I'd rather ride a donkey into a town that praises me and then wants to kill me than fly a jet like a king. Go out is the essential rule for manna. If you're going to get bread from heaven, what do you have to do? Oh, man, it is Resurrection Sunday coming up. Say, so, man, it's just a date on a calendar. It's not even the right date. And you'd be right. <laughs> you could say, oh, the Greco-Roman calendar and the Jewish calendar split so many long. It was the work of anti-Semitism. And you'd be right. You could quote the early church fathers and find out they were slanderous anti-Semitic pigs. And you would be right. And you know what is still true? It is an opportunity to go out, to go out and find a blessing. And if you're spat on, what does the Bible say? The glory of God rests on your shoulders. And if you are rebuked or cursed or trampled upon, the glory of God rests. The glory is out there. It's not in here. Oh, man, go get some. Come on now, go get some. Look at Exodus 16, 31. It is another important point. I realize that it's 12 o'clock. I also do not care at all that it's 12 o'clock. So if you do, you get up and leave when you need to. I am um, just beginning. I hope that doesn't scare you. If it does, then welcome to Life Changing Ministries. In Exodus 16, in verse 31, the people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. What did it taste like? Woo! Anybody in here go, oh, don't give me any of that good stuff. Don't give me anything that's sweet. None of us are addicted to sugar, are we? No, no, we're not. We're addicted to sugar substitutes. I'm dieting as long as it doesn't cost me anything. I'm dieting as long as I don't have to give up anything. It was such a joke. I was always on the Atkins diet. Obviously not always. That would be hyperbole. <laughs> because I didn't have to give up anything that I liked. I only had to give up things I disliked. I didn't realize how analogous that is to Jeroboam's faith. In Exodus 16.31, we find out a remarkable truth. The Word of God is good all by itself. It doesn't need an additive. It doesn't need a sugar or a sugar substitute. It does not need anything. How dare we think that we have to make the Word of God more palatable for the people? How dare we think that we have to defend the Word in such a way that they can, can receive it? I say let it out of the cage. It will do its own job. It will break the hearts of men. It will convince all that they are sinners and point them to Jesus Christ as you lift up His Word. 
We don't need another program. We don't need another slick pastor. We don't need another mega church. We don't need some more pretty people, pretty clothes, and pretty buildings. We need the unadulterated word of God. The manna tasted pretty good by itself, but would you be surprised to find out that that's not what they did with it? Look at Exodus 16 and verse 23. In verse 23, he said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. Oh, church. When the seed first appeared on the ground, it said they could grind it. But they end up not just grinding it, not just baking it, but boiling it. I'm going to start with the last thing first. I'm going to start at the end of the process. Sometimes it's, it's, it's oh, well, if we just grind it a little, it'll be okay. <laughs> well, if we ground it, I mean, what's baking it? It's just one more step, you know? Well, if we can grind it and bake it, we, we can submerge it in something hot and boiling and totally change its substance, can't we? I mean, these are degrees, Apparently, the manna wasn't good enough by itself because by the time they ended up boiling it down, say boiling it down. You know, when you boil something down, I guess that's not wrong. There are things we have to boil, right? And how, how many of you, they're all in the L7 lounge. All of you with babies, little beautiful babies like AJ there. We don't give AJ filet mignon yet. You got to puree something. Usually you got to boil something and then puree it, right? Because you got to get it soft because they don't have teeth yet. Man, if we got to boil down our manna, we got to put some breast milk in it. What does that make us? Is that what you want? You want a breast milk word? You don't know what I wanted to call this message. You know what? When all you hear is bless me, Lord, bless me, Lord. When all you hear is what God will do for you, the great cosmic genie in the sky that will grant all your wishes if you vote for Pedro. When that's all you hear and the cathedrals are getting bigger, the egos are getting bigger, the planes are getting bigger, and the appetite for sin is getting bigger. Don't dare call that a success in my presence. You better look out if you're calling it a success in God's presence. Grits in baby cereal are fine for babies. But at some point, we got to move on. Well, maybe, maybe boiled is not your thing. We'll just bake it. You know, can we just make the bloody rugged cross into something prettier? Can we make a pretty cake out of it? Can we spread some icing on it? I know. We'll put just your name on it so that it's just for you. In other words, it's all about you. Manna becomes your birthday cake. The gospel about you, for you, by you, of you, to you. You know, that's foreign in the biblical world. The gospel was for the world. And when it came to you, it was for them. See, we bake the word of God 
into pretty little shapes. And we add things to it to make it taste just a little better. Now, maybe you didn't go so far as to boil it, but did you need to put icing on it? Woodrow Block was preaching in Sri Lanka. And y'all know Woody? And I love Woody. He's one of those few human beings that makes me look calm sometimes. One of his associate pastors, after he delivered one of the more scathing rebukes to his church I'd ever seen, he told them, stop worshiping with those stupid-looking Buddhist face you have. He said that to the people that he loves. Apparently in Sri Lanka, uh, Buddhism encourages people to not show emotion. And so he was frustrated that they had come out of Buddhism, but Buddhism had not come out of them. He wanted them to show emotion in church, to begin to yearn for church. There's, there's, there's no place for that message in America. So he told them what God expected and said that he would not accept because God would not accept anything less than their wholehearted devotion. And one of the younger pastors who was uncomfortably leading worship <laughs> says, uh, I know many of you may be thinking to yourselves, pastor's given a hard word. Woody stood up, grabbed the microphone out of his hand, told him, sit down. That was not a hard word. It is the word. It is the only word. It's the word of God. There is one standard, and it is immutable and unchangeable. Now stand up and worship. They did, and we had an amazing service. I have to admit, I felt terrible for the man who was leading worship. I wanted to crawl under my pew for him. I talked to him about it later. Like most folks in that situation, he said, what I was going to say was, we don't need to add anything to the Word of God. The Word is the Word. Let it be the Word. Let people's hearts deal with the Word. Let your heart deal with the Word. We don't need to make it more palatable for you. He said, well, I'm just a sensitive person. I just, listen, the Word is the Word. We're not going to bring the standard down to you. That's to bake the word. You know how I want the word? I want the word like men eat granola. I want to reach into that sack, grab all that I can fit in a fist, shove all that I can fit in my mouth, and just chew like there's no tomorrow because I know it's good for me. See, you can grind it, bake it, or boil it if you want. I want to eat it in its unadulterated form. Fistfuls, bitefuls, one life at a time. How do you want your word? Look at Exodus 16 and verse 17. Y'all still awake? Yes. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, he who got, by the way, an omer is as much as three quarts. That's a lot of manna, isn't it? He who gathered much did not have too much. You mean God could be concerned that you would have too much? Boy, you don't hear that anymore. And he who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone thinks they have too little, but God says you have what you need. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Oh man, if you'll go outside the camp, if you will get close enough with God to find out what His heart, what His direction is, and you'll go after it, you will always have what you need. Do you know how many times on this trip I sat down on the side of the road with my head between my knees and said, God, I could fix this if I just had a hammer. 
I didn't bring a hammer, Lord. Looked up in the distance, and there's a family dollar store that sells a hammer that is fit for one of these little girls. Jesus, I should have been more specific. I need a mole. I need a sledgehammer. I need a wrecking ball, Lord. I want, I need. Of course, I prayed and hit it with that little feminine sissy stick. And with a sledgehammer, it probably would have come out after the first whack. With the sissy stick, it took about 35 and some prayer between each one. A little bit of praising. But it came out and I'm standing here. I had what I needed. I didn't have what I would have liked to have had. But I trust the king to know what I need better than I know what I need. I want to warn you about accumulation for a minute. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. And when they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much. Say too much. And he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it till morning. Why would you want to keep it till morning? Because I don't want to have to go out tomorrow and do this again. This summarizes human behavior. Why do we work hard? So that we won't have to tomorrow. All of our society is set up on working as hard as you possibly can to gather as much as you possibly can so that at some point in your life, you don't have to do anything but die. And that's exactly what most people do when they retire, die. Coasting, accumulation, and ease is introducing maggots to your bread box. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and it began to smell. Some people's faith is full of maggots and it begins to smell because the only reason that we go the extra mile, the only reason that we work hard is if I do it on Friday, I won't have to do it Saturday. We're really just looking for a chance to load all of our work into one place so that there is no work in the next place. Oh, church, Jesus did not live that way. It's unbiblical. He said, are there not so many hours of light in which a man can work? Night cometh when no man works. The only conclusion you can draw from that is while we're in the world, we're the light of the world. And until death snuffs out that light for a temporary time, you do the work of him who sent you. This message of convenience and ease is destructive to the people who are receiving it on any level, anywhere, because there's maggots crawling in what otherwise would have been heavenly bread. So you gave to a cause. Praise God for that. So you went on some initiative. Praise God for that. You showed up for a work day. Praise God for that. I think that the king that we serve is worth our very best every day, all day. Coasting and ease causes worms. And yet it is the longing of our hearts. Friends, we need a circumcision of our hearts. We have to cut that away. We have to find joy in doing the difficult. Listen. When somebody walks up and says, you did that wrong and you did it with the wrong motive and furthermore, everything that you do is wrong. 
I want to punch them in the face just like you do. I want to spit on them. I want to say, you don't know my heart. You don't know my motive. You don't know. You don't know. But the right response is, thank you. It is. And if you hear it from more than one person, then the right response is to go get on your knees and say, Lord, perhaps I don't know my own heart because it's deceptive beyond cure. I need your help. Lord, would you use your word to measure my heart? And you may find out that most of what they said was processed hay. But the rest of what they said, there was something you could chew on, something edifying, something that you needed to hear and perhaps just didn't want to hear. That is LCMF. We do not shy away from the rebuke. We say, thank you, sir. May I have another? It is an oil, a kindness upon our heads. Why? Because it means somebody cared enough about us to consider our direction and comment on it. Can you say amen? amen? We're not looking for the easy word. We were made to go to the furthest distance and at the highest cost because that's exactly what he did. And it's our joy to do it every day. In the state of Texas, my air conditioner quit working. In the state of Louisiana... Only 180 miles into the trip, I got my first flat tire. In the state of Georgia, a wheel lugs stud, we're talking heat-treated forged steel, broke off inside of the wheel hub assembly. And the wheel came off in the steepest mountain range in North America. As I was going through 90 degree switchbacks on the backside of a mountain meant to be traveled in smart cars. In Tennessee, a fuel line spontaneously erupted and five gallons of gasoline shot all over me, Gabriel, and our vehicle and flooded a moving, heated, on fire automobile while driving down the interstate. In Virginia, the wastegate on the turbo failed. In Alabama, we started using three quarts of oil per every hundred miles. In Mississippi, there was a catastrophic failure of the wheel bearing assembly that sounded like a sledgehammer hit the front of our vehicle and we went from 70 to 30 in a matter of seconds so that my little weenie dog went from the back seat to the front dash. By the way, Napa, Advanced Auto, O'Reilly should follow me around, but they do not. It's a healthy jog to every auto parts store in every state. On top of those things, when you find out that it's going to be 28 degrees and the only thing on your brand new trailer that is not working is your heater, it's a chance to blaze God, praise God. When you announce that you're teaching on the baptism of the Holy Ghost and say, turn to the book of Acts, and a child comes running in that has gashed open his head and now requires eight staples. Praise God. When you're preaching about a desire to reach the world and you get the phone call that your India visas were canceled. 
The nation of India no longer wants to be blessed by your presence. I bet we spent $100,000 in India in the last eight or nine years. And they don't want us. They've barred us. We cannot enter into their country legally. Of course, I thought back to a time when if my pastor's visa hadn't been canceled from the country he was living in, I wouldn't know the Browns. I might not be filled with the Holy Ghost and wouldn't be standing here with you. God's providence is at work in the things that are resisting us, even though the devil is trying to destroy us with them. Do you know that in every one of those states when we were broken down, I also met someone. I also prayed for someone, and in most cases, we fed someone. You know, we found a couple in Tennessee, and they had two little boys, and it was one of the boys' birthday. And the man was a roofer, and you could tell by his hands he was actually a roofer. He had tools in his car. When I said they wanted food, they didn't want money so that they could go do something else. They didn't want to go leave and buy food. They wondered whether we had extra groceries because Jeroboam's church that was right next to us, uh, although they could afford the millions of dollars, they, they couldn't, couldn't help this family. They said, well, they may have been con artists. They may have been swindlers. They may have been scammers. I've met all of those. I've never seen any of them take frozen ground beef and bread and mustard and treat it like it was a brand new iPod or a laptop or a new big screen TV. They hugged it. They were making sandwiches out of mustard because the bread was not, uh, the meat was not defrosted yet as they were going to their house. They were hungry. How could it be that we cannot distinguish between those who are hungry and those who are scam artists? Well, maybe we haven't been close enough to God to get that far from the camp. My heart's desire in sharing this message with you is to tell you that I'm something of a doubting Thomas. Put John 20, 24 on the screen. I want to find out if you're a doubting Thomas. I want to tell you up front, I am a doubting Thomas. Now Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. I've gotten to the place that if you don't have the marks of Christ on you, I'm not sure you're Christ. I don't think Jesus showed up and said, here's my nail scar. <laughs> Look what's happened to me. I don't think he celebrated the wound, as a victim of the wound. I bet he showed up and said, this is how much I love the Father. And he's given me all the authority in heaven and on earth, and I'm giving you authority. You don't believe me? Touch my side. You don't believe me? Put your finger in the nail hole. I was reminded that the Apostle Paul also talked to people as if he expected them to be doubting Thomases. Look at Galatians, the sixth chapter. Say there when you were there. In the sixth chapter of Galatians, starting in the twelfth verse, those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about their flesh. 
your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. How was he crucified to the world? He no longer needed the things that the world needed. He no longer worked for him. He no longer longed for him. He died to the world. Now his glory is in what he could suffer right alongside Jesus. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Here we go. Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. When you wanted to know how serious Paul was, when you wanted to know what he thought of his Lord, He bore on his body the battle scars that said, I love him so much that I don't shrink away from the difficult. I don't just show up in Jerusalem on praise day. I show up to be crucified daily. You want to know what leadership looks like? I don't feel sorry for the lion. He's giving his life to be a lion. That's what he is. It's what he was called to be. Oh, he wouldn't have any of those marks if he just sat in the zoo and took what he was fed. But then he wouldn't really be a lion either, would he? I want to tell you that Jesus Christ went the furthest distance. And he's called you to follow him on the very same path. We close with Ephesians. I'm sorry, Philippians. As we approach... The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. During the, what is called the Passion Week. It is so easy to think about what Jesus did. And in thinking about what Jesus did, if you miss the connection, the very strong connection. Just like the one we have with our brothers. In every other part of the world. If you miss the connection between what Jesus did and what Jesus expects you to do. You have perverted the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just that he died for your sin. He expects you to die for his righteousness as well. You have to tear out of your Bible the 16th chapter of Matthew otherwise. You have to tear out of your Bible the testimony of the men who wrote it who did. Philippians 2 says it this way. Starting in verse 4, each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And if you just stop and thought about that verse for a minute, on what day was Jesus whining about his circumstances? On what day did Jesus back away from saying what he knew was true because he was concerned about the outcome? On what day do you see Jesus polling the people to see if he was popular? On what day did his identity depend on what men thought about him? On what day did Jesus ever have to go around fishing for compliments or begging for the affection of others? Have you considered how very hard his life was? People loved him, but most hated him, and he was loving to all. 
He got hungry. He got tired. He got thirsty. He grew in wisdom and stature, which means he was altogether human. It might even be that when he said, who touched me, he didn't know. He was dependent upon revelation from the Father the same way that you and I are. In all of our discussions about Jesus, have you considered what his attitude was? Let me sum it up in this phrase. The prince of this world is coming for me, but he has no hold on me. The world will learn that I love the Father and I do exactly what pleases him. Oh man, do you have that attitude? When things aren't going right, do you get excited that you get a chance to prove that you love him? Or like a petulant child, are you angry with him that something is required of you? See, this is a message that the world needs to hear. God is not the cosmic genie put here to satisfy your every whim. He's not Disney World. He's not fire insurance. He is a righteous, sovereign king who loved you enough to die in the most miserable way and then invite you to follow in his very footsteps. But the reward is that even as he was exalted and he's the head of his father's kingdom, you reign with him in the kingdom. You want to know what an abundant life looks like? When there's none of you in your life, there's only him. That's an abundant life. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God. Can anybody in here say that? In Hebrew, the sense that you would get from even the beginning of this statement. This, this poem is Hebrew parallelism. Every line corresponds to another line in the poem. And I don't want to teach on that kind of technicality today, although it is beautiful. The reader would be shocked immediately at the thought. I'm about to consider someone whose nature was God's, and I know mine's not. And the extent to which, the height from which he started and the depth to which he went. And I'm not starting from that height, and I don't get to go to that same depth. And yet I'm supposed to be exactly like him. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. If he didn't consider equality with Father, and he was equal... Not something that had to be retained, held on to. Why do you care so very much how everybody else views what you do? Why do you need people to see the value of what you do? Why do you compare yourself with them at all? I'll be honest, I listened to all of the messages while we're gone. I loved them. I thought they were amazing. The one thing that I have a hard time relating to I don't compare myself with you. I don't. I, in the kingdom, I have one standard. And, and every day I'm asking the Lord if I have made it down the journey He wants me on. It never occurred to me to want Charlie's journey. I admire it. It never occurred to me to go, oh, Charlie went this far? Well, that's where I'll stop too. Never. I feel like the goal for every person is as far as you can possibly go because he is worth it. And when I see someone that goes further, I'm not jealous, I admire. And when I see someone that stops short, my question is just did they go as far as they can? 
You know, we're not all built for the same thing. But we're all built to die for him. It's the Passion Week. Everybody's going to talk about Jesus' death. Nobody's going to talk about their own. You know, it's hard to get men to go to their friends' funerals. And if you can get them to go to the funeral, you usually can't get them to go to the bedside before the person dies. They don't want to be faced with their mortality. Man, when you came to the cross of Jesus Christ, what were you faced with? But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Say it. Even even what's being asked of you that is too hard what's being asked of you that oh my god we're going to have to take some time off I just can't do this oh church that's not who we are it's not I want you to learn to turn your face into the resistance and say I can take that and anything else you have to offer because he's worth it if there's breath in this body then the Holy Ghost resides here to defeat this attack. I broke down on the side of the road in every state I traveled through. Every single one. There were times my wife was crying in the car. Even my dachshund broke down. My little wiener dog hurt his back and couldn't walk for a couple of days. I started calling him Bullet. And on the way up there, I want to confess to you when I was sold the wrong wheel lug stud, my compressor, I'm sorry, generator had failed and my impact had failed and I didn't have a hammer. And then I realized the stud was too long. I couldn't get a lug on it. I was angry. Guy came driving by in a car for about the third time and it was an Eldorado Cadillac and an older one. And he was a man of a certain age sitting in such a way that, you know, it looked a little creepy. Got my wife, my little ones on the side of the road. So about the third time he's come by, I'm a little bit angry, a little bit red in the face, and our eyes met. And you ever have that feeling when you notice someone's noticed you? But he didn't say anything. So I watched the car circle, come back around, Stood up and walked over to the elder. I said, hey, hey, fella, I noticed that you noticed us. Uh, can I do something for you? I know it's bold. And maybe not very godly. I certainly cannot say I was being led by the Spirit. I was not all that happy. I actually thought he was probably a threat. You know? I was concerned that I had to jog back to an auto parts store and leave my family here and there was a shark prowling. He was a pastor. He's a pastor of a little... Little church said, I've RV'd all over the place and I've had many days like it looks like you're having. I've been working up my courage to stop. I'm glad you said something to me. I said, I'm glad I did too. <laughs> he carried me to his buddy who had the bandsaw and I realized that even in the midst of my own sin, God is at work. I ended up praying for him. But my first thought was that 
that might not be the way this was going to go. Church, I don't know what your position is now, but I know this. If you will become obedient, if you'll go the furthest route, if you will see resistance as a blessing, getting to be like Christ, the rest of this is true. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore you, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. And he goes on to talk about them shining like stars. Are you worried that resistance is going to expose your weakness? Are you worried that you can't finish because it's just too hard? I want to tell you, if you'll submit to crucifixion, you will experience resurrection. Amen. The Passion Week is about a man who submitted to God's will to the point of death and was glorified and is at the right hand, and is God over all. And now he promises us that if we'll be crucified with him, that he will raise us up with him. That sounds like kind of a pie-in-the-sky, theological, end-of-the-ages thing, and it's true in the moment that you set out to go talk to what you think may be a predator, and you realize he's not the one in sin, you are. You submit to what God is doing, see it as a blessing, and end up leading an entire workshop in the middle of their day in prayer. Is that because you were a great person or a weak person? It's because you were weak, but if you're willing, He will make it great. If you could get in your head now that this is not what leaders look like, this is what every believer looks like. You ought to have marks on yourself from Christ. This is when I submitted and didn't want to, and God was glorified. This one, this one over here, no, no, not football, not warfare, deacons committee. This one right here, that, that's mostly in the back, that was another pastor. Oh, don't think that I'm, I'm hurt by these things. Look what I learned. Look, I found out that I was a sinner and God could still use me. I found out that the king's worth it. And limped, bleeding, and hurt, I still move forward. I find out that in my weakness, he's amazing. I got to tell you, that's the heart of this ministry. Some will mistake it for macho bravado. Some will mistake it for just we have to do things the hard way. It's just shouldn't be mistaken for anything other than a great love for the Lord that says no distance is too far. No. Could y'all stand to your feet?